Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. I'm Sebastian Kaplan, based out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina in the U.S., and joined, as always, by my good friend Glenn Hines from Derry, uh, Northern Ireland. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Seb. So, as we often say that we're excited about today's episode, we have a, a wonderful guest. We're sure to have uh, a, a really interesting conversation but before we get started with that, Glenn, why don't we uh, do some orienting to where we where the audience can find us? Sure, sure. So our Facebook page is Talking to Change. Our Twitter handle is Change Talking, and we've been receiving some great feedback and conversations on that, and we encourage people to continue to do that. And we've we've got a question for Sylvia today from Rory that has come through the, the Twitter, so thanks for that, Rory. And then our email address is podcast at glennhines.com. Great. Yeah, I'm glad you did that, Glenn, and posing the question ahead of time. This podcast thing is relatively new for both of us, so Mm -hmm. I I like that as as something that we've learned along the way to to start doing, to uh, because we've always wanted feedback and um, and questions about particular episodes or future episodes. So uh, I thought that was a nice touch. So yes, Rory, thanks so much for uh, contributing to today. <clears throat> okay, and uh, I apologize if I'm coughing a bit. I, I'm a bit under the weather, so I might have to clear my throat on occasion. All right, so now to introduce our wonderful guest. Uh, our guest today is Sylvie Narr. Uh, Sylvie is the Distinguished Endowed Professor in the College of Medicine's Department of Behavioral Sciences and Social Medicine at Florida State University where she's the founding director of the Center for Translational Behavioral Science. She is trained as a pediatric health psychologist and has conducted health disparities research with minority youth for the past 20 years. She's had several federally funded projects developing and evaluating interventions to improve health behaviors in adolescents. She has both clinical and research expertise in behavioral interventions for youth living with HIV focusing on adherence to medications, adherence to appointments, substance use, and sexual risk. She has had several federally funded projects utilizing motivational interviewing to improve health behaviors in adolescents, both in randomized clinical trials and in implementation evaluation contexts. She's had experience in multi-site evaluation studies of complex multi-level interventions for health resource and service administrations special projects of national significance and the national institutes of health clinical trials she has worked with the adolescent trials network for many years she's been the principal investigator on two multi-site trials within the adolescent trials network for hiv aids and she's on the behavioral leadership group for this network finally she's a national and international expert on motivational interviewing with particular emphasis on adolescents and young adults she's a member of mints and she has worked closely with the developers of MI, Bill Miller and Steve Rolnick, to author, author the first textbook focusing on adolescents and young adults for Guilford Press's motivational interviewing series. She has provided numerous MI trainings to agencies and treatment organizations locally, nationally, and internationally. Both her training and her research have utilized practitioners from multiple disciplines, including community health workers, to deliver motivational interviewing. And one additional piece to her bio is she's also the uh, co-author of a recently released book entitled Motivational Interviewing and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Combining Strategies for Maximum Effectiveness, also put out by Guilford Press. Sylvie, it is a great pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> so there's like we said, there's lots of places where we could go and with uh, with such a, a rich career that you've 
had up to this point. And but we thought it would be nice to just hear your MI story from the start. So maybe we could start with that. You know, where did you first hear about MI, and and then we'll go. We'll take it from there. Sure. So um, back in, and I'm going to age myself, 94, 95, um, I started off as a psychology intern at the Children's Hospital of Michigan. And I was working with um, kids with chronic medical conditions, mostly from inner city Detroit. And then we were supposed to refer them for psychotherapy. And they were supposed to come into our offices and do traditional psychotherapy. And then we would see them in the clinic for these sort of brief interactions. And we were struggling with the fact that they weren't coming and weren't um, engaging in, you know, the traditional uh, work that we did. And I was like, there's got to be another approach. And we were, and also when we were seeing them in clinic for the 10 or 15 minutes, didn't feel like we were maximizing anything, we, like the potential. We were just doing like assess and refer, assess and refer. So there was a colleague at Wayne State who was a really early mentee, Steve Andersma. And um, I was talking to him and, you know, about these struggles. And he, in fact, his, his future wife was my intern partner um, at the time. And he, you know, was telling me about motivational interviewing. And I said, you know, this could be really effective. He was in the substance abuse world where MI had started. And I said, this could be really effective in this setting. So I did a pilot study um, using MI with youth living with HIV. And I wasn't yet trained in MI at the time. I was the PI and then... Um, Jeff Parsons and, and colleagues trained my folks. And I remember vividly watching a video of one of the sessions with um, this kid really who I had seen in my psychotherapy and didn't really get anywhere. And he was responding and he finally comes back and says, hey, um, uh, you know, I, I do think I want to use condoms. And he pulls out this condom and said, yeah, Dr. Nara gave me this condom months and months ago. And I never even thought to use it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was just like this eye-opening thing for me of, um, you know, that the traditional things we were doing were just not effective, which was, you know, a lot of CBT-like stuff, but it was a lot of kind of, you know, psychoeducation and um, and and just using the MI approach with, with this kid who, you know, I had struggled with was so, was really eye-opening. So it wasn't until my next trial, I was busy having babies and all that. And then when I had my next trial, I said, I want to be one of the therapists in the trial, even though I was PI. And then um, actually ended up training before I actually even did MI. I was, I kind of was following Jeff Parsons around as we trained people in five cities for my next trial, um, which was a multi-site trial of this of MI um, adapted for youth with HIV. And that's when I, I became trained myself. So I was sort of PI, but I was also a newbie in terms of delivering the intervention. So you learned, you, you learned by following a practitioner before you actually went away and trained specifically in motivation interview and you were watching people practice it and looking. And, yeah. and, and it sounds like one of the things that, that drew you to it was that desire within you to you know, you saw things that weren't working in, in, in traditional settings and you're saying it would be great if there was something else. Yeah. And the MI seemed to offer you that. And then Yeah, I was a researcher. So I was like, like, you know, what in the literature has been shown to be effective with populations that don't, you know, really respond. And that was, yeah. yeah. So again, imagine that there's lots of people here, lots of people listening to this today will be recognizing that our patients, our clients aren't, aren't engaging with our our treatments, what can mm -hmm. we be doing differently? And I think perhaps th there's an opportunity for us to learn from your experience today, what it is they can be thinking about differently, about how to engage not just young people, but patients in general and treatments mm -hmm. that, uh, that they don't seem to want to be involved in at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I'm actually curious what you, because you were probably a well-intentioned, well-meaning, uh, intern and professional, right? And, and just wanting the best for the clients that you were serving. And what what were you trying to do that wasn't working? And then well, I mean, what I, in particular maybe yeah. struck a chord for you? And I, mean, I think I had some natural engaging, you know, strategies. Like, I mean, the kids liked me and I liked them. And, you know, I also ran a camp program and I mean, I, I, I connected with them. So the kind of humanistic, 
you know, kind of approach was working from that standpoint, but we weren't getting behavior change. Mm. And I think it was, you know, we were doing a lot of, like I said, psychoeducation, a lot of skills teaching. Here's how you put on a condom. Here's a condom demonstration. Now you try it. Um, that kind of stuff. And, and maybe also some psychotherapy of like trying to get into like, you know, the kids like thoughts and feelings around having HIV and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, the MI approach of really trying to figure out intrinsic motivation and, you know, why might this be important to you? And I remember vividly for this kid, he actually had had um, some issues with, um, uh, you know, potentially transmitting HIV to another sex partner. And, you know, he just didn't see the risk of other people as being the motivator. And we always assume that that's the risk. Like, you don't want to pass on HIV. And his thing was, well, how do I know she doesn't have it? She didn't ask to use a condom. But when we started getting into that he could catch other things that would make his health worse, mm. that was his motivation. Mm. So it was like kind of, again, eye-opening of, you know, when we don't elicit, you know, what the, is going on with the individual, we have a lot of assumptions about, you know, why people might want to change. And... And, you know, and our own biases, you know, obviously influence that process. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so the harm that this individual was going to do to somebody else in itself would suggest that that's a good reason for you not to do it. But it's not a good reason for this individual. And what mm -hmm. you're pointing out is that what we think will make people change itself is really interesting, but itself is not necessarily true for the, the person we're working with. And, and what MI offered is that opportunity to say, well, what under what circumstances would you be willing to do it differently or, or what would change right. your mind and that right and, that's and in the case different. i mentioned yeah. like the the skills you know he did have the skills like he was carrying the condom that's what he's supposed to do he had mm. just never opened it mm. was probably fired by the time you know he even got, mm -hmm. got into my session but so so that was another example of like all the skills in the world you know are not going to make a difference if you don't have the motivation to use them mm. so. so a key early lesson there then i suppose is connection that that you know therapeutic rapport if you will that's important but it isn't necessarily enough to produce behavior change yeah. and education you know uh, you know relying a lot on advice giving education uh that's not well, always enough thing. yeah yeah and and so the the shift to searching for what what was in it for them what mm -hmm. what what was the key reason that they could identify for themselves or this kid in particular uh, to make that change? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another early lesson, another little story that um, I like was how am I allowed through the, just the, these basic communication skills allows you to cross cultural boundaries. So again, you know, the kids that I was working with were almost exclusively African-American inner city kids. And one of our therapists in this really early trial was Caucasian, Jewish American, um, you know, lived in the suburbs, wealthy. And so, and she's talking, you know, and using the MI skills and it's working with this really difficult case. And, and, you know, I remember she goes, she's talking about, you know, smoking blunts and drinking stuff that I don't even know what, you know, what it was. And she goes, I'm the whitest girl in America. Can you, you know, tell me in your own words, <laughs> what this means to you and what you're doing. And it like, and he cracked up and immediately just started talking about all kinds of, you know, behaviors and, and uh, that was another kind of learning lesson. Yeah. To mm. so her, her authenticity seemed, mm -hmm. to, seemed to shift something for him. Yeah. Her authenticity of like, and also that sort of like, you're the expert, you know, you teach me, mm. you know, what your life is like, you mm. know, and that was, it, that's very much, you know, in the spirit of MI. Right. The client as expert or, or seeing the, mm -hmm. the work as a collaboration between or partnership to use the, mm -hmm. the specific MI spirit terminology, the, the partnership mm -hmm. between two experts, as opposed to just one expert in the room. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So it sounds like that was all very exciting. I'd imagine that, 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 sounds like it really energized you in what you were witnessing and it, it drove you forward. So where did that take you? Where, where did, what led you from that place to where you are now? Where else did you find yourself going? Um, I'm trying to think. So, I mean, from there I went into pretty much, you know, like more traditional research trials. So we had like a multi-site study of motivational enhancement therapy as applied to HIV. And like I said, in five cities, and um, which showed effects on viral load and um, substance use and sexual risk behaviors. And 
we also simultaneously were doing some computer delivered MI with um, Steve Andersma's um, group. And that was also very powerful to see. Um, it was it's basically like an avatar that does reflective listening and affirmations and eliciting questions and um, to see that having effects like in such a brief, you know, computer delivered intervention was again, eye opening to me about the power, you know, of what MI could do. I, I was pretty much early on integrating MI with CBT like interventions. I guess I could talk about that. So at the same time, that I was tearing my hair out with these young adult, adolescents, young adults with HIV. I was also working in diabetes and asthma clinics with kids that were more 12 to 16, younger kids that were engaged with their families. So the HIV kids were like 16 and up and most of them, either their parents had died, right? From HIV themselves. So they were on their own or in foster care or relative care, or they were over 18 and not connected with their families. So we were doing a lot of individual work, but with these younger 12 to 16 year olds, um, we were looking at family-based treatments and and we started working with a group that does multi-systemic therapy, which is an approach that's been used more with uh, drug use, juvenile delinquency originally, and then drug use. And we wanted to, um, it basically allows for a menu of evidence-based treatments, but it's still a research methodology that you can test. And so it's home-based, uh, one or twice a week for six months, doing mostly like CBT-like and parent training, behavioral parent training interventions. So, um, uh, and so we were doing that and publishing on that approach to improve diabetes and asthma um, adherence and health outcomes. Um, and so we started integrating the two. Um, the MST folks didn't do MI. They, they did their research and MI was a different kind of research and they didn't really blend them. And they did, they talked a lot about therapeutic alliance and engagement, but they didn't they did it a little bit more in the abstract. Like I think a lot of traditional CBT um, therapists do. It wasn't like, well, how do you use language to make that happen? Mm -hmm. We started training our therapist after we were doing the studies, we started training the therapist in MI as like another piece. And that's when I started thinking more and more about integration. So that was happening kind of at the same time. Mm. And again, what's interesting is, is that what you're saying is that there was you were doing lots and lots of research and it sounds like you were doing lots of research with what probably could be described as quite isolated individuals whose mm -hmm. lives were quite complex and but what's also really interesting is is that it seemed to be that the research was showing something positive about what it was you were doing and that the motivation of the viewing was having a beneficial impact i imagine simply because that's something you're so used to it, it could be easily lost to the listeners to yeah. recognize that you know that you yeah. were you were working with you know, quite isolated people, and and the research consistently was shown doing it this way was really helpful for them. Yeah, I think that's really true, and I think you know we never tested like MI separate. You know, like here's um, multi systemic therapy with MI, and here's multi systemic therapy without MI. Mm. It was more like in a real world kind of setting. You yeah. know, where like we're having therapists go out to the home and doing treatment, and mm. and we're going to train them the best we can. So, um, yeah, I mean, later on, uh, we moved into an obesity treatment study where we did a more formalized kind of integration and started doing some of the communication um, studies that like Moyers and colleagues do, you know, you know, looking at what are the provider utterances that are sequentially linked to patient yeah. statements and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I can talk for a long time about that, what that research showed. But yeah, so that was a big move in my career was integrating with MST and CBT. And um, I was probably trained in CBT first. People always talk like, like, did you learn MI first or CBT first or both simultaneously? I was trained more in the CBT first and behavioral treatments. Mm -hmm. um, so and then I guess the other... So that's, so that's one shift. And then the other big shift in my thinking was just doing a lot of training. And um, I started, I was actually doing training of HIV clinics. So I was doing a lot of HIV research, but then on the side, a couple of the clinics would say, Hey, you know, would you come and train our whole clinic? We didn't get to do X, Y, Z. And so I started learning a lot. I would still do what I do in research in my training, like in terms of measuring outcomes and seeing, looking at fidelity and um, learning a lot about you know, the struggles of what it's like to teach MI and, and get folks to practice MI to fidelity, like a research trial. Mm. 
and the differences between doing it in a research setting where you you know you hire therapists who are hired for research purposes and versus in the real world. And so that kind of led me to do um, some research where I'm at right now, which is my research in using implementation science to really understand how do you get evidence-based treatments in real world settings. Some of those early years spent combining MI and CBT for several challenging health conditions, as well as MI and multisystemic therapy. Um, I wonder if you could think back and maybe remember what what was uh, a particularly interesting or exciting finding in, in some of those early studies that you did? When you say interesting finding, do you mean from an MI standpoint or from the health outcome standpoint? Or Well, I, I suppose either directly uh, a finding about MI or something that you learned about MI or something that you found that MI led to as far as a health outcome. Yeah, well, I would say... Um... There's so many. I'm like, I don't even know how to choose. I mean, okay, well, I'll, I mean, I'll just go in order. So um, one of the early findings I thought was really interesting is we were using MI for to target medication adherence, sexual risk, and substance use, right? And, and when you do MI, you know, you have specific target behaviors and you're, you know, really focused on those target behaviors. But one of our earliest findings was that the MI group significantly improved in their depression scores. And we were not targeting depression per se. But this is in our HIV kids. But it was clear that this is this approach with its spirit and affirmations and all, everything that MI includes really helped with this, you know, with depression. Mm. And and again, these kids were not necessarily diagnosed with full-on depression, but they all, you know, had depressed mood from just virtue of what they were, you know, struggling with. And we've seen that finding a couple of times across a couple of different studies, and I think that's really powerful. So that's one. I mean, I'm still going to say that how hard it is to, to have people deliver MI with fidelity. It's, it's just, we get people to like beginner level competency pretty easily, but getting people to that more advanced level competency, I'm not sure, uh, especially with my work with community health workers, how often we get to that, that mm. point. You can still get really good outcomes with beginner level competency. That's the good news. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, and we're doing lots of research and trying to figure out how to get people to that place. That that's another one. And I have been just fascinated with the communication science studies that really pull apart. You know, what are the key elements of MI that are like most powerful, at least for my populations, which is the you know minority youth. Um, and in our communication studies, where we're doing all that coding that I talked about. The emphasize what we're calling as a skill, and it's not labeled as a skill in traditional MI, but we call it emphasizing autonomy. So in spirit, MI talks about autonomy, but we actually like, but I think it's a mistake that we don't say, well, how does that translate to a micro skill? So we actually teach a micro skill, you know, you've got ORs, but we teach emphasizing autonomy as a micro skill because it, it just came out across so strongly in our uh, sequential analysis. And not only with the adolescents, everyone's like, oh, adolescents, autonomy, but the parents too. Right. So we actually did the same study with the parents and that still came up really strong. So, so we teach very specifically, how do you emphasize autonomy with you statements? How do you know, um, how do you emphasize autonomy in the opening statement? All, you know, we have a bunch of um, specific skills around that, that will probably be in the second edition of the MI adolescent book, which I am supposed to be starting this month, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that really um, has been, that's huge for me. Um, and then the last one, which we can talk about later, is you know, what we're finding now about implementation science and why some individuals and some organizations uptake MI so well and some don't. Hmm. So quite significant so, findings there, given that a lot of people who will be listening to the podcast are you know, multidisciplinary practitioners who don't necessarily uh, have the opportunity or maybe even don't even plan to go on and specialize in motivation to be in practice. But what it sounds like is, is that what your, what your research shows is that even by making small changes to practitioner behavior can and does have a significant influence on patient yeah. behaviors and quite interestingly also unplanned benefits in their own experience of themselves and their mood i think that's absolutely true and my, my study that i'm working on right now is we we're taking 10 adolescent hiv clinics and we're randomizing them two at a time to get motivational two-day motivational interviewing workshop with follow-up coaching and everybody in the clinic comes doctor nurse visit psychologist social worker 
uh, outreach worker, paraprofessional staff. And, and we, and basically we're using beginner level competency as our cut point. If you hit beginner level competency, then like follow-up coaching is optional because these right. clinics are extremely busy, you know, and then maybe one or two people might want to move on to become internal facilitators, but everyone else were like, let's just get to beginner level. And, right. and that seems to be, you know, effective. And then also the, um, I think an added benefit, which people see is, is the, the experience of a whole clinic attending that two-day workshop creates the spirit of teamwork that mm. everybody's telling us is, is just one of their favorite parts of the study. So you mentioned this, the levels of competency, whether it's beginning level or advanced level, people might be wondering about that. How, how, yeah. how would I know if I was beginning level? Or right. So, um, so the original ideas of competency came from the mighty, the motivational interviewing treatment integrity codes, and there's competency levels based on that. And so in our early trials, we were using mighty and you had to hit at least that beginner level competency in order to be clear to see participants. Um, we've now developed this coach rating scale with item response theory methods. Um, and I presented it at the conferences and we're starting and we'll, we'll get an, we're going to have a paper out. It's actually in the MI and CBT book too. Um, and it's a 12 item measure that we use and, and based on the data, we've actually identified four competency levels. It's novice, beginner, intermediate, advanced. So we actually now call it intermediate because before it was like, below i think the the mighty was like below competency like beginner competency and advanced and our implementation science studies said people get really discouraged when they see below competency <laughs> they hate it and so and also there was a lot a lot of variability in those that were below competency you had people that were just like really doing bad stuff and mm. then you know, just were kind of not doing anything and i think there's a difference mm. of do no harm versus being uh and so we actually go with beginner novice intermediate advanced and and so that's where those cut points are. And we did it in a, in a data-driven way. Mm -hmm. And so it, for those who don't know much about the MITEI, it's both global elements of how the person is conducting the overall uh, conversation and then some very specific behavioral targets to achieve those proficiency levels, right? Right. Yeah, our rating scale includes items that are more global and includes items that are more specific, but it's not a behavior count. It's meant to be... Mm -hmm. Like like a one pass, you listen to you know fifteen minutes of interaction and you rate it and go. It's meant to be able to be done by a supervisor in a real world setting. Because mm. there's something about being judged as well that that uh, perhaps uh, learners are are feeding back to us, uh, not just patients. That idea that you mentioned earlier on that it seems like people like to be in control of their own lives. It's not just kids that like autonomy; it's it's adults as well, and and perhaps uh -huh. it's it's also true of us practitioners as well. We like we like to think we're doing a good job, or we like we don't like being told we're not doing a good enough job. Um, yeah. And in terms of what you did as well, was that I, I wondered about the expectations that if if you're saying to people, look, we're not trying to train you to be experts, so don't be don't be leaving here trying to be an expert. But here's some things that might be helpful. Right. And and the people who who took that away got on with it and the people who wanted or were a bit more curious came back and asked for more. Exactly. Right. And it's also, it becomes really important too, because we do get a lot of like, well, I'm not a therapist. Why do I, I don't do this. Mm -hmm. Why do I have to learn this versus really seeing MI as like a communicate, a method of communication. Right. So, yeah. That's, that seems like a really important and interesting point that while a lot of people that do MI are mental health practitioners of various uh, backgrounds, uh, what MI ultimately is, is a form of communication. And then any, anyone having a conversation with someone who's considering a change or trying to make a change, it, it, this would be relevant for. Right. So one thing that you had mentioned too, that I was curious to hear more about, and I imagine some people in the audience are wondering about is this emphasizing autonomy, uh, not, not necessarily the coding aspect of it, but this seemed like a really powerful thing that you were observing and we're, we're finding maybe some links to outcomes. So yeah. what, what are some examples of how your, your uh, clinic staff and the therapists that you're working with, how do they emphasize autonomy? 
Um, so, well, one is um, emphasizing autonomy with you statements, like um, this is really your choice. It, okay, in the MI book, they talk about emphasizing personal responsibility, but we really like to get to specific language. So that's why we call it like the you statements. And we teach people like, it's not your problem or your diabetes, but your choice, your plan. Mm. And we always laugh about how we're trained to say we, mm. we're going to figure this out. You know, we're going to make up a plan, but it's, we want them to take responsibilities, not my plan. It's your plan. So using that kind of language is one thing. We actually teach illicit, provide illicit as a strategy of emphasizing autonomy. What do you know about diet, you know, about diabetes? Hmm. What do you think um, about this plan or, you know, eliciting feedback? So um, that's another one. And then the clarifying your role as a guide, you know, I'm not here to tell you what to do or, or how to do it, but to figure out what changes you want to make and what, you know, what's the best plan for you. Those so, are some examples. So, so again, it's, it, it's about that, the spirit of collaboration. Yeah. And these, these you words, this is some of the language that communicates our desire to be collaborative, but it also sounds like that, that when you're doing this, that it's not just from the teeth out, as they would say, that it really is a case of, I do trust in you that that you can work your way through this with some support. If I can be supportive of you, I can I can offer that to you, but I'm not going to force this change on you. And I think right. that's 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 one of the things that I think a lot of people that uh, a lot of people hear what it is that MA talks about and they recognize the words and they say, "Oh, we we already do that" because they recognize the words and yeah, um, yeah that's it's it's the actual being collaborative rather than talking collaboratively. Yeah, well, I mean, you have to do both. I mean, mm. that's why I mean, we still teach MI spirit, you know, first, mm. but then we kind of move pretty quickly into this language of emphasizing autonomy. Mm. Yeah, and then I guess the other thing is, is uh, we don't teach reflections general thing that you do. Like we teach reflections of change talk. In the old days, I used to just do what we did, which is like, let's do batting practice. Here's how you learn reflections and you reflect everything. Mm. Now that I think our research is, is confirming what's been out there, that it's reflections of change talk that really leads to more change talk and reflections of counter change talk lead to more counter change talk. Right. So we only teach reflections in terms of change talk because I believe, you know, when you're learning, you latch on to the first thing you learn. You really do. And then you may not get anything else. And if I teach reflections of everything, that's what you latch on to. And then when I later on try to fine tune it to change talk, I lose that. So it's not that we don't, you know, want to reflect other things. We teach about we teach expressing empathy, but we don't teach just generic reflection. It's very targeted with a particular emphasis, knowing the outcome in advance. Yeah. So right. why why yeah. why inverted commas waste our time reflecting the stuff where the goal's over here? Let's reflect right. reflect the gold. Right. I mean, we still we still will teach reflections of feeling as part of expressing empathy because mm. I don't use that. Like just because we're only reflecting pain, like it doesn't mean that if someone's expressing pain, you don't acknowledge it. And so we teach that almost separately, and then um, and then we focus on reflections of change talk. Yeah. I see. So yeah, I was curious what the how or I guess what the distinction was with expressing empathy and not focusing on reflection because I, I guess in my mind the way we express empathy is through reflection right I, so i try to teach expressing empathy around things that are like around emotion but i don't want i really don't want my folks going like you really don't want to do this this is really important you know this is something you really don't want to quit smoking weed like i don't want them to focus mm. over and over. i want them to you know maybe express empathy and say this is really hard for you so that, in that way, I try to kind of frame those as feeling reflections and keep those separate as part of expressing empathy and then focus my basic reflections as change talk. I see. So, yeah, so this might be a really important point for someone who's first wanting to use MI with some of the challenging health behaviors in their work is, as we know, clients aren't all going to just sign up for change right away. And they might say something like, well, I, I really but I really want to keep smoking marijuana. Mm -hmm. and you have moved away from reflecting that content directly and right. more so a reflection of the difficulty in change or, or something, but, right. but not necessarily even mentioning marijuana use. Well, I would say. do it 
what I would do, because we still teach them about how to respond to counter change talk and discord, but we focus on autonomy. So if someone says to me, I'm, I don't really want to quit smoking weed. I, I don't see a reason for it. I, I don't want to reflect. You don't, you know, you don't see a reason for it. I want to reflect. It's really up to you. It's your choice when you're ready. Mm. I would much rather my practitioners respond to that with emphasizing autonomy than with a, just a simple reflection of counter change talk. Because our research shows that those emphasizing autonomy statements tend to lead to change talk more, whereas the reflections of counter change talk don't. There's quite a, diff a few different steps in the dance that we're endeavoring to do with, to have with people. Yeah. That, and the more aware of what it is we're trying to achieve and learning from what research like yourselves doing is showing us is if you do, if you reflect this, then chances are your your patient's going to move in a particular direction. If you do this, it's going to move in another direction. Which mm -hmm. direction Which direction are you trying to get them in? Well, yeah. Follow these steps or be aware of this when you're dancing with them. Yeah. And this, and this, and because I'm a researcher, I mean, this came directly from our data. When I looked at the correlations between, you know, this, these different kinds of provider statements and, and what the very next thing the client said was, that's what came out. If I'm going to believe in my data, I should be adapting my training accordingly. Right. So Sylvie, what would you say to people, particularly practitioners that work with teenagers, that at least having a little bit of back and forth around counter change talk or the, the fact that they might want to keep using drugs or alcohol or cutting or, you know, whatever the behavior might be, that being okay with a reflection or two around the behavior itself, to not shy away from it, to, to maybe perhaps learn more about their world and how it relates to drug use, for instance, that that's actually valuable from an engaging standpoint. And then you could lay some of the foundation for discussing change a bit later on. What, what would you say to that? Um, I, I still think you can do a lot of that without directly reflecting counter change talk. I think you, again, I think you can do it with emphasizing autonomy. I think you can do it, you know, with summaries that kind of have both for and against change. I still do believe in doing a pros and cons, but only if other stuff doesn't work. And I find that if you are, again, that with expressions of empathy and um, with the emphasizing autonomy, you go pretty far and you don't ever really have to get to that sort of directly reflecting counter change talk, you know? So I'm getting that this is really important to you and kind of, you know, that, that's just like a much more general way than saying like, you really like smoking weed, you know, this is really important to you. This is really part of your life or, and then also um, we don't count reflections of barriers as reflections of counter change talk. So if someone says, you know, I really want to quit drinking, but my friends, you know, every time I hang out with my friends, I want to drink, you know, you're going to focus in on, you know, you really want to quit drinking. And then you're going to kind of be like, and so having a plan to figure out what's going to, you know, how to make it work with your friends is something we'll have to talk about. Hmm. So again, it's not ignoring it, but it's finding different ways of talking about it instead of a direct reinforcement. What I just said right now is kind of an advanced skill to teach people. Um, so the way for early, that's why for early first due day trainings, I just don't teach reflections of counter change talk. Just mm. like I don't, I don't teach amplified reflections either for, mm. for in workshops. I think it's a much more advanced and nuanced skill. And you can do a lot without ever reflecting the counter change talk directly. Yeah, it's just that learning to connect in a meaningful way. If, that's, yeah. if they leave, if they leave doing that after two days, that's a good two day mm -hmm. workshop. Yeah. yeah. And, or they just, just not even just responding without judgment, you right. know, <laughs> if I can get that done, mm. you know, instead of, if I can get them to like, um, when I was in Australia, they taught me like, don't should on yourself and don't be a masturbator. Don't do the shoulds and the musts. If I can just right. get you to do that, um, you know, then, uh, you know, we've come a long way. Yeah. And talking about coming a long way, you're you're now uh, in quite a prestigious uh, job and and leading innovative work uh, around behavioural science. And and I wonder, could you tell us a bit about what it is the centre that you're working for now, and um, and what what you're discovering there? Um, well, it's brand new. Um, so I only came to FSU, you know, about a year ago, um, and I've hired um, three new faculty so far. Four. Um, the focus of the center is 
what we call translational behavioral research. And so rather than just doing like clinical trials, we want to look do early phase translation, which is look at basic behavioral and social science and develop new interventions, or do like these communication st science studies I've talked about and look at new adaptations of MI. Mm. Um, and then we also want to do later phase translation, which is taking evidence-based treatments, moving them into practice and studying what works and doesn't work, that implementation stuff. And, you know, the idea is, is that there's like, 15 years gap between what happens in the research lab and what actually gets out into practice. And so by doing this kind of translational work, we want to shorten that gap. So yeah, I'm really excited about it. I have some really dynamic people. Um, being in Tallahassee is interesting because I'm at the, at the state capitol. And so there's a lot of opportunity to work with the state health department in, one, in what's one of the largest states in America that has not always been progressive in terms of social change. Right. Um, so, so that's been interesting. Also, um, Florida has the highest rates of HIV in the country. Um, four of our cities are in the top 10 for new infections. And so we have a real problem here, um, both in the cities and in the rural populations. So that's one of the things that I'd be, I'll be working on over the next few years, mm. looking at like statewide implementation, um, of some of our interventions. What's interesting is you're saying that, uh, medical research typically takes 15 years from the lab to bedside intervention. But what, what you're in endeavouring to do with the behavioural sciences, speed that process up. And, and it sounds that, that sounds really exciting because it offers, I imagine, both practitioners and, and their patients and their clients real hope about things improving in the short term and the near future. Yeah, I think what's important is that there's been this translational phase model for the medical field for a long time with lots of money going into early phase translation and developing new treatments, but we don't see the same phased careful approach with um, behavioral interventions and certainly the funding isn't there. So I've been working pretty closely with NIH on, you know, what are some methods for very early phase trials that will be is are fundable and same thing with the later phase trials um, and see what we can do. Mm. And I'm really motivated in terms of now, you know, training the next generation of researchers as I move into the later phases of, you know, my own career. <laughs> and it sounds like you're just ideally uh, placed in the state of Florida with, with your both your background and, and energy around implementation and addressing the HIV, um, you know, the, the concerns that, that are unique to Florida. Right. And by chance, two of my favorite mentees, Jen Luther and Heather Flynn, uh, were both in Tallahassee. So, Quite a synergy there, for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So as far as your MI and CBT work, I, I'd be curious to hear a bit more on your uh, your focus on, on combining these two yeah. uh, approaches. So in terms of my background, I was definitely m trained more carefully in more behavioral kinds of CBT. Um, so my OB, my first trial of true integration, well, MST also has a lot of CBT in it, but was around obesity and it was like developing a full manual of MICBT integration and skills. And it was very focused on behavioral skills training, although there was some stuff around managing thoughts and um, more, you know, traditional cognitive restructuring. But we found that most of our kids were responding to more of the behavioral skills components. When I wrote the book, um, I had to re-immerse myself in all different kinds of CBT. Um, so we decided, we did include the DBT approaches, um, mindfulness, um, but we, and relapse prevention, we decided to keep ACT separate. I just felt like it, I wasn't enough of an expert in it to try to kind of pull that into the book, although there's some really nice literature coming out now on integrating MI and ACT. And um, could, you, could you just say a moment like DBT, ACT? Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, dialectical behavior therapy. We did kind of pull that more into the book because we felt that those, a lot of, that a lot of the things that were happening within dialectical behavior therapy could get pulled in. Same with behavioral activation, but act acceptance and commitment therapy, we kind of decided not to pull in because I didn't, it was newer and I didn't feel that I was an, an expert enough in it to, to do that. So, so when I first started presenting on MI and CBT, the late guy Azule um, uh, said to me, which CBT? And I'm, I said, you know what, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. That's just my style. And so what I did, I talked it over with Bill Miller, and there was a lot, a big push for this common elements approach, which is like, you've got all these different kinds of psychotherapies and, you know, a million different approaches and to try to have a poor practitioner become an expert in even five of them, you know, is really 
difficult. And so could we distill, and this was not just my idea, this has already been in the literature, could we distill common elements? So Bill, being Bill, said, well, you think they're common, but they're not so common. So let's call them, because people aren't doing them the way they're supposed to. So we called them shared elements. And so basically, as I poured myself in the literature of, you know, behavioral activation, uh, dialect, uh, the dialectical behavior therapy, uh, more traditional CBT, like cognitive restructuring kinds of approaches, and um, behavioral skills training, and I'm sure I'm forgetting what else I poured, relapse prevention, and I read a lot of Barlow's unified treatment approaches. And I was felt like we could distill some common elements. You know, every single one of those CBTs had some sort of assessment process. Everyone had some, you know, maybe it was a functional assessment. Every one of them had some sort of treatment planning process where you kind of figure out what are the different thoughts and feelings that are contributing to the behaviors, context, et cetera. And, um, and then most of them had like a skills piece. So even like dialectical behavior therapy that let's say would focus on distress tolerance, that's still a skill. Or behavioral activation where you have to plan pleasured activities, pleasurable activities, that's a skill. So I felt like we could, if we could come up with how do you integrate MI in assessment, how do you integrate MI in, in treatment planning, and how do you integrate MI when you're trying to teach a skill, that would get at a lot of what the different approaches to CBT do. So that's the approach we took is we tried to come up with like more of a unified uh, approach of how to integrate MI with the more common elements of CBT. Mm. It wasn't an effort to figure out how to do MI first and then to do CBT when you're done with doing MI. It was it was weaving MI through these critical shared elements. Exactly. I felt that there had been enough out there already on how to do MI as a prelude. And also, I didn't think that that was as hard, right? Like you do MI and then you do CBT and you shift. And I mean, although T Moyers and folks have talked about it is hard to shift and when do you shift back and forth, I felt that there was enough out there on that. But I, because I'm such a believer in MI as a foundation and a method of communication, it seemed to me, why wouldn't you want to do full integration? That was just, you know, how I think. So that was the approach. I mean, so we talk about, you know, some of the other ways you could do it, but the, but the book is supposed to be almost like a unified treatment manual for integrating MI and, and CBT approaches. And then what we did in the book is I took five cases that were totally different target behaviors, alcohol use, medication adherence, obesity, depression, and anxiety. And every chapter would talk about how you would use that integration for each of those five cases, again, showing that you can really take this approach and utilize it across different behaviors without huge adaptations. Because to me, again, a practitioner in a real world is seeing all those things, you know, all the time. Mm. That, that in itself sounds like a huge piece of work, Sylvia, the, the dedication, the focus, and, and, and essentially the thoroughness of what it was you did. You know, that dedication you have to you know, what is it that we can discover from this that can help us do help the people we're working with and for us? And I wonder if if I can refer them to the question that Rory Rory Alec, yeah. one of one of one of our mint colleagues, Texas, and it was the question, and you've alluded to some of it already. The CBT is a big church. I'd be interested to hear whether Sylvie th whether Sylvie thinks that certain CBTs are easier to integrate with MA than others, and in what ways. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I remember having conversations with Rory and Paul Earnshaw around early stages when I was first writing the book. Um, so I'm not surprised that, that, that Rory came with that question. So thank you. Um, so yes, CBT is a big church. Again, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. So I think that if you distill things into common elements, that that still makes a lot of sense to me. Most CBT approaches, um, you know, do focus on some sort of skill. Um, so I don't, I think you can integrate MI into any CBT approach. Mm. I think that for me, the cognitive restructuring is still the big and the meta, um, the, um, the meta cognition kind of CBT. Those are, were harder for me to write about. And I think it's because the patients, the clients that I work with don't respond to it as much. They don't respond to that, like, here's my thought, now I have to counter thought. Um, or they don't, the whole concept of maladaptive cognitions is very counter to MI. And, you know, we talk, I, you know, a lot of what I do is reframe the language. So instead of saying relapse prevention, we talk about maintenance and slips. Instead of saying 
you know, maladaptive thoughts. We say unhelpful thoughts mm. um, because that's all about, you know, am I? So some of that's just reframing, but I, uh, I tend to personally, and, and I should say, I went through CBT therapy while I was writing the book um, and I didn't do my homework like hardly at all. <laughs> I, I, I found all that struggle and, and I'm probably, you know, one of the most compliant patients. So, mm. um, so very heavy homework focused CBTs are tough. And, um, uh, but, but definitely the, I, I tend to prefer more of the distress tolerance and mindfulness approaches to the cognitive restructuring. But I don't think that, I don't know if I can really say that MI is harder to integrate. I just think that personally, that's my preference. So I hope that answers the question. Um, Cause even with, I mean, I have a whole chapter in the book on how to integrate MI with cognitive restructuring. And I mean, the basic skills of, of, you know, shared expertise and, um, not labeling and affirmations and eliciting the client's ideas, using at elicit, provide elicit when providing information. I mean, those work mm. for everything. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, I remember many years ago hearing Bill talk a bit about one of the ways that MI and CBT go together. And, and it, it, it kind of fits with the shift within MI that, you know, obviously it was, it started and continues to be very behaviorally focused, mm -hmm. but now people are starting to think about change in other, uh, in other ways. So changes in thinking, for instance, mm -hmm. is something that people are starting to apply some of the MI concepts to. And, and I, I, I do remember Bill saying that, I, I don't remember the exact quotes or whatever, but that that's one of the ways that he might approach a combination of MI and CBT is, is, you know, I, I guess rather than change talk being focused around a behavioral target per se, it's right. change talk around a different way of thinking or, or perhaps using a more helpful style of thinking. Exactly. And see, to me, that's, that's still a behavior, right? Like, I mean, so, you know, am I, if I'm always seeing the glass half empty, that's still, it's a thought, but it still comes out in a behavior. And so I don't make that huge distinction between thoughts and behaviors. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, like my communication science, people talk about language as, as a behavior, you know? Um, so to me, just as that's my target now is those thoughts, you know, whether it's black and white thinking or, you know, always seeing the negative. And so I would do, you know, my change talk would be around, you know, what are some reasons why mm -hmm. you want to think, you know, in black and white, why would it be important to you? And CCBT never quite does that. It just labels them as an unhelpful thought, but mm -hmm. doesn't really get it why do you think that might be unhelpful right. how is how is it unhelpful life? to you yeah. yeah give me an example you know tell me about a time when you know black and white thinking didn't wasn't helpful for you know that kind of stuff because if it is helpful for them it's not going to change right. so mm. assuming that it is so to me i think that's still you know really an important target now i must say you know i do at the end of each chapter of the book, I do talk about dilemmas. And that was came from Terry. Again, her recommendation to me was like, I, you know, someone needs to talk about the dilemmas. Like, when do you get stuck? And it all boiled down to, it's funny, after having a dilemma in every chapter, it still boiled down to the same thing, which is when a client doesn't want to do what the CBT says is the thing you're supposed to do. Right. So logging, self-monitoring, you know, and, yeah. and so what do you do? And I, you know, you basically have options. You could say, well, this is what I, this is the treatment I do. And if you don't want to do it, then maybe come back another time when you're ready. You could do MI around that thing and try to wait until you get there, or you can keep moving forward and say, okay, you know, forget the self-monitoring. I have to, you know, get, provide information. The evidence suggests that it's harder to change this behavior without self-monitoring, but you know, let's see. Mm. And in a couple of sessions, if it doesn't work, we can come back and revisit it. So that's kind of, to me, the key dilemma. And, I, you know, I don't say what you should do. I can, I think every practitioner has to make that decision for themselves. Again, that just that fluidity in your response to the circumstances that you find yourself in, where, yeah. where's the client at? How are they responding? Is it a thought that they're struggling with? And again, what's really interesting is that that idea that my smoking may be harmful, but my thinking may be harmful too. Yeah. And to, to approach it from that perspective. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And then you have to decide, you know, if you have to have a preliminary target, you know, before you can stop mm. the smoking, you have to have a, you know, change this other target behavior, quote, mm. thought. Yeah. So I'm conscious of our time and, and, and 
there's so many more questions that we could explore. But I suppose one of the ones I'm curious about is this: given the fact that you have been so immersed in in so many different ways of helping, what is it that you may have discovered when uh, exploring CBT or MST that that you have brought back into your MI practice as much as anything else? What can we learn from those other approaches that as MI practitioners that may help us in the future? Pulling in certain things, like I believe, I do believe that self-monitoring is the key, like a key skill for behavior change. But if other than bringing in those skills, um, when I do planning, I always am really careful to do if-then plans. So my plan is to, um, uh, you know, start working out at the gym on Mondays. And so I always want an if-then plan. So what are some things that might get in the way? And how are you going to overcome them? Right. So even though that's not like officially part of MI, it's something that I always do in the planning phase. So almost contingency planning if, if yeah. things don't work yeah. out. Like we teach, when we teach like the change plan or the planning, we always include an if-then plan right. part. Um, and, and I always say that, um, you know, coming to sessions should be part of that. Like what's going to get in the way of coming back? <laughs> and how are you going to overcome it? Right. <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. So, so the if then plan is specific to to barriers for this person making a change or maintaining change. Target behavior, right? So, if our, if our target and our plan for the next time is around physical activity or around substance abuse, or I'm gonna not, you know, I'm only gonna smoke marijuana at night and I'm not gonna smoke during the day. What might get in the way? Oh, well, if my friend calls up and says, "Let's do a wake and bake," how am I gonna handle that? You know, that kind of thing. So, another question then: What's where's your research taking you now? And what are the questions that you're asking that that you're hoping to answer? Uh, well, I'm very still really interested in the whole uptake of MI across different settings and populations, and and you know how much effort do you put into trying to teach MI to fidelity? Like, do you really go like put everything into teaching an entire clinic everything, or do you kind of just say, okay, I'm going to teach everybody a little bit? And then I'm going to find the people that are really going to take to this. And because it's costly, it's energy, it's, um, you know, trying to get people to do follow-up coaching in almost any setting is really difficult. So I'm really interested in that. And and I always used to believe that you wanted to train inter- people in the organization to uptake MI so that they could, tra- you know, train the trainer. Mm. And I used to spend so much effort trying to train what we call internal facilitators and supervisors. And some agencies just don't take to it. And they're Mm. like, you know what, can you just do come back every year and do it? It's just, or, or can you just be our coach? Because, you know, we just don't have time. So so my thinking has started to shift where I always thought like, of course, the best way to approach sustainability is to have people in the organization be able to continue the MI process. And I'm not sure that that's for everybody, that sometimes having a centralized expert and trainer that Mm. delivers may be better. And I'd like to see more data around that and figure out, you know, when and where and whom, you know, that makes sense for. So a coalition of the willing Mm-hmm. Uh, George yeah. Bush's coalition of the willing work with yeah. the people who want yeah. to rather than making people do it because they're supposed to or they have to or right. they must yeah. right and if an organization is just not able I mean some of our organizations are just don't have the resources or the time or right. the ability to take it on that it's okay to then say you know for this five or ten thousand dollars a year you know that it would cost for, to, for you to do it that's more sustainable for mm-hmm. us than trying to have internal people that may leave anyway right um, so, so I think there could be some really good work on cost effectiveness of the two approaches and uh, of the different approaches to sustaining um, MI practice within an organization. So this seems like it would be really valuable both for the community agencies that trainers are trying to reach out to and, and affect some changes in, because then it it kind of gets at what are the what what do agencies really need. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because the assumption is, well, we need to do these big workshops for everybody involved and teach everybody the same thing. But perhaps you'll find out that actually, no, that's not the case. Maybe it's right. just specific components or small pieces for everyone. Right. Or maybe everybody gets like the one day, you know, and yeah. and then like a handful, a group, you know, get day two or everybody gets the workshop. But the follow the follow up coaching is only, you know, yeah. for a certain degree. Yeah. And. It, I could certainly see it changing the way trainers think of their work, you know, challenging some of the assumptions that we have about what 
what the gold standards are. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the truth is we, we may think we know what the gold standards are, but that just might be because that's what we we're always doing. Uh, well, exactly. And the other thing is, is I don't think people realize how low the competency is in the average treatment setting. So I'm involved in a study in California where we train every, we give everybody a two day workshop in MI and then the supervisors are supposed to, we then code sessions. We give the coding to the supervisors and they're supposed to supervise them. And the quality of these recordings that we're listening to after, you know, this is after two day training is so low for many that I am just shocked, you know, at the treatment that our substance abusers are getting in this mm. country. Mm. And this is in California, which is one of the more progressive states. So, so people, so, you know, as trainers, you know, we always want our patients and clients to be happy with small changes and we're, we are so much tougher on ourselves. So this whole concept, Glenn, that you keep kind of emphasizing about the small changes that you can make in your practitioners is critical mm. because baseline is really, really lower than you might realize. A scary thought. Yeah. A, a sobering thought for us sobering. for us all. Yeah. Well, yeah. but perhaps I, I don't. I guess I wonder also as part of your implementation work, Sylvie. Is I mean, do you see it? Do you think it's possible that we might find someone with low competency relative to, say, the mighty standards mm-hmm. that 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 might actually be, if that's much better than what they were doing before that that's actually quite significant as opposed to really alarming and concerning. Yeah. I mean, when I'm doing, when I'm going to look at my analysis, like for my study, I am not going to look at the competency scores are cut points for us to deliver coaching. I'm not going to run my analysis on competency scores. I'm going to do it on the raw mean data. Cause if I go from a 1.5, like our measures on a five point scale. So if I go from a 1.5 to a two, I may not have moved up in competency rating, but I guarantee you that I'm doing a little bit better work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, that um so that's how i'll be looking at at it yeah great well exciting stuff to come uh and as glenn mentioned as we start to to wind down our conversation today uh usually our last question for our guest is uh to to let us know about a a project or a recent interest you already mentioned one about the yeah the yeah. MI and the, the second edition of the MI in adolescence book. Maybe you want to talk a bit about that or certainly something else if it comes to um, mind. Well, I'm excited about the second edition of the MI adolescent book. I've never done anything like that before. It's supposed to be uh, about 50% new content. I know that I have come, like, learned so much in the last seven or eight years um, in terms of how I train and, and, you know, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today. So um, you'll definitely see more, you know, stuff around this emphasizing autonomy in some of our communication studies. Um, I'm definitely going to be integrating. We've learned a lot about, about adolescent development, and the adolescent brain and fMRI and all that kind of stuff that I think could influence, um, you know, how MI works with adolescents and young adults. Um, so I'm excited about that. Yeah. And we're also, the format of the book is going to be different. We're not having, um, like, guest edited sections. Um, we, people wanted a more integrated book, um, but still addressing special populations. We're probably going to take the approach that we did from the CBT book of five cases and carrying them throughout to show sort of the flexibility of MI for different populations. And we have to start talking about MI with parents of, mm. of adolescents. And, you know, that could be a whole book and nobody, there's nothing written on so much on parent, working with parents, working with parents and teens together. Um, I'll have, I'm not going to be able to address it fully, but um, that'll have to come through more strongly than it did the last time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting time. Something to really look forward to. That's the Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) And these things are unpredictable, but is there a rough estimate of when people might expect these on Right. So Guilford Press ex- expects it from us by the end, just like by fall. Um, and then it's usually about a year, you know, of editing and production, you know, to editing and production. So, so assuming I'm supposed to do a chapter a month starting this month, it's already the 18th of March. But um, so theoretically, you know, a year from the fall. So fall of 2020. Hmm. Great. So we'll be getting it at the uh, Mint Forum 
2020? Well, I submitted a pre-forum workshop. Um, I don't know if it'll go through, but mm. on, um, you know, sneak peek into the second edition. So that would be my hope by next fall, by the mm. mid forum, if the workshop gets accepted, then, but then fall of 2019, we will have written most of the chapters and we'll be able to do um, a workshop on it. Exciting. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. That's great. So, and, and given how much you've talked about today, Sylvie, I, very often people will, will want to follow up. And we often, we always ask our guests, if, if people listen to the podcast, were curious and they wanted to find out more, would you be willing for them to, to reach out to you? And if they were to reach out to you, how, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, you can reach out to me with uh, NAR, N-A-A-R, at behaviorchangeconsulting.org. Um, behaviorchangeconsulting.org is the training company I work for, and um, they you can find us on that, their website or just email me directly that way. Fantastic. And we'll, we'll add that link to the, the blurb on the, on the podcast as well. And certainly just to remind people for contacting us or feedback on, on this or any other podcast that, that you've listened to, the, the Facebook is Talking to Change. Uh, the Twitter handle is at Change Talking and email is podcast at glennhaines.com. Excellent. Well, Sylvie, uh, this has been a pleasure. We've learned a lot about the work that you've done. You've been a, a you've made a huge impact on on the field of MI, and we thank you for that. And, and we thank you for coming on our uh, our podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Sylvie. Right. And uh, Glenn, until next time. Indeed, indeed. Good yeah. to see you, Sylvie. All right, you too. Thanks, Bye-bye. everybody. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.